Okay, this morning, I'm just going to read from, from Nahum, uh, the book of Nahum. It's quite an interesting uh, book, uh, not very much heard of. They, it's, re, it's referred to as the minor prophets, and I don't think in any way that anything that God would do through any individual is minor. Minor only in the sense that he's not as, it's, it's a small book, and uh, very small, but not small in the sense of what God was doing uh, in and through uh, Nahum, who was a prophet. And I'm going to read there, if I can get to it. I'll read there, Nahum, the first chapter. But I just want to give you a little background. There's a little background about the, the book of Nahum. Nahum was, uh, again, he was like a minor prophet, what some say. He was born in a little village of Palestine. I think it's Al-Kosh. He was born there in this little village. And, uh, but he was raised up at a specific time to be able to comfort God's people. His very name means comfort, comfortable one. That's, his, that's the word name in the Hebrew means. One who comforts based upon the comfort of God in his life. So God raised him up to comfort God's people. And what this man was doing with the word that we see here was he was prophesying against Nineveh. Nineveh, he was prophesying against Nineveh about 150 years after Jonah's revival that was there. 150 years after and of that great revival. But at that time, that, that uh, Nahum was, was again speaking and prophesying. It was still at the height of its glory. And you can see that in Nahum, the third chapter, verses 16 and 17. But what was, this was what was known about Nineveh, that the whole empire was extremely cruel. I mean, just very cruel. The cruelest I've ever seen as far as humans treating other humans in the Bible. They were very... Uh, extremely cruel. As a matter of fact, even the people, they would gloat and brag about space filled up for corpses of their enemies. There wasn't enough space. Can you imagine? Very, very, very crazy. And there were pillars. They had pillars that were covered with the flayed skin of their, of their rivals. That's what was going on here. And uh, also, they made, they made pyramids of human skulls. You didn't talk about satanic evil. So here is this what's going on, and God raises up Nahum to comfort them in the midst of evil. In the midst of this evil. So, But he was doing two things. He was declaring the doom that was going to come, the judgment that was going to come upon Nineveh, and eventually it did, a hundred years after he prophesied to them. But God has his way, doesn't he? His timing, too. hundred years after it fell. And this city, again, it was, it was ferocious, it was sensual, it was diabolic, just such diabolically atrocious uh, race of men. Just unbelievable when I studied and, and looked at this. And, uh, but God dealt with it, and he dealt with it in such a way that even when Alexander the Great came to the conqueror, he was walking on that city, not even realizing it was under his feet. <laughs> that's how much, that's how God dealt with it. Uh, 
But it also shows the, the, the unbel- even with judgment, the unbelievable patience of God. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years for, for people. And, uh, but what, what he was showing was, and, and Nahum, and God was convincing Nahum, just like he convinced Jonah when he first came to Nineveh, 150 years before Nahum, when he came, he was convincing him that God was slow to anger, but yet would take on, he would take on and revenge his, his, all his adversaries, his enemies. And what God would have us to do is what he was doing here, was to focus on the light of God's government. Even upon that wicked, you talk about Nineveh, you ever hear anything so just... And it just reminds me of even some of the things that in our country, uh, you know, with abortions, I mean, that's pretty evil. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. But then some of the atrocities that happen to people in Afghanistan, some of the things that it's just, the, it's just you can't even believe that a human being would be so insane. Yet in the whole of that, God is letting us know that he will, his judgment will not fail. That's number one. His judgment won't fail. Two, he will comfort his people. He will comfort people. And he's going to do that. So what do we learn? What does God have us to learn here in, in what we're going to share this morning? What does he have us to learn? He's going to have us to learn the goodness and unchangeableness of the love that God is. That's what he wants us to know this morning. And also to see the limits. There is a limit of his divine forbearance. There is. And uh, that's the truth of the matter. So when we look at this and reading it from the, the Hebrew Bible, what he does is that he wants us to know that his right, righteousness, his right prevails in the end. The end of everything about you and I. Everything about our life will end in his righteousness. No question about it. And Boyd wants us to know this, that just before the dawn breaks, it's very dark. Just before the dawn will break, the light, things that we hope for, prayers, answered prayers, things we're going through. But just before that, it's extremely dark, extremely dark. And then to see God's government, his control over things. He wants us to know that. His unbelievable control. His, and the control is, has to do with his gracious purpose. And in that grace, it's for us to comfort us, yet for all his adversaries and his enemies and ours, it's this, his retributive, what? Character, too. Character. And then finally... This is, this, these things meant so much to me. Man's extremity is faith's hour and God's opportunity. Know that? That's what it is. Man's extremity is it, it brought to the extreme and things in our life. Literally, what is that? It is, it is, what is it? It's faith's hour. What is faith? Dependence on him. He will always be dependent on and that becomes his opportunity to reveal himself, to reveal himself. And some of the things, you know, some of the, my, we all have, don't we all have our personal uh, troubles, our personal struggles and troubles? You know, Job said, 
and 23.16, the Almighty troubles me. He doesn't cause the evil, but he'll use it to make our hearts soft and get it ready for comfort. The Almighty troubles me, it says, Job 23.16. He makes my heart, my mind, penetrable, soft. He makes it soft. And just with some of the things I've been personally dealing with very recently, uh, this morning, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking of anything. Basically, I was just calling out to God, um, calling out and thinking of uh, others' troubles, some of their troubles, and I was just calling out to God and calling out about my own. And, uh, but the thing that, the verse that really came to me this morning was this verse, and this is Nahum 1.7. In the midst of all this evil, now that's the background, pretty dark. I mean, does, I mean, if it's not dark in our country, I don't even know what darkness is. But yet there's incredible comfort. That's on a national level, but it's also on a personal level. Very, very personal level. But this is the verse, right, that was like this burst of sunshine on this stormy, cloudy day. And that's what it was like with me. It's passing through this intense storm. And then the, his comfort and faithfulness was just burst, like the sun just burst right through. And it's Nahum 1-7. And this is for the believer, what we can always count on. The Lord is good. He is good. He's goodness itself. It brings it out in Exodus 34 and verse 6. It is his very nature. It's, the, it's literally who he is. Goodness is who God is. <laughs> and uh, so it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows them that trust in him. Now, a stronghold. Stronghold here in the Hebrew is ma'az. It's M-A. O-W-Z, Ma'az. This is what it means, a fortified place. A fortified place. It's a defense. It's strength. And it's from the Hebrew word Azaz, A-Z-A-Z, Azaz. That's what it's from. And it's a, it's a primary root. It means to be stout. So in the, in the day of trouble, in the day of trouble, he will deal with our enemies, and, but he will make us stout and strong in the strength that he is for us. St to be stout, and it means figuratively, six different times this Hebrew word means to strengthen. Three times it means to prevail. Strong, it means strong. It means impudent, and it means hardened. He makes us hard. This makes me think of uh, that if we're going to be a soldier in the Lord's army, and it's his battle with, with us having on the right armor, we need to, be, to, to, un, to know and understand endure hardness. How do we endure hardness? In the comfort of his love. He's good. God is good. And so what is a stronghold? A stronghold is that that God brings us to. He brings us to himself so that he can truly bless us. Right in the day of trouble. Right in the midst of the, just as, it's almost like just before the light of dawn breaks, it can be extremely dark. That's the background here where Nahum was. And that can be where we are at times, which I do believe is where we are 
in our country, and I do know personally we can experience these things. But to get to this stronghold and to experience the fact of that stronghold, there must be a full experiential confidence in God. And that's what he uses to trouble. That that the enemy means for evil in Genesis 50 verse 20, God means it for what? Him, himself, who is what? He's good. He's good. And so there has to be a full experiential confidence in God. How? Through submission. He'll use what the enemy means to be against us, to teach us the lesson of submitting to him, his goodness. Because every time we submit to him, who are we and what are we submitting to? Goodness itself. God is good. He isn't anything else but that. And so there has to be a submission to God's providential care and his word. There has to be that. There has to be, and here is this really amazing thing, there has to be an unquestioning repose and rest in himself. So what the enemy means for trouble to get us, get us out of a place of resting in him, in his goodness, God uses that very thing to bring us right to his presence and to find how he so blesses us with himself who is good. And we see that. So God himself is this goodness. He is. And everything that that has to do with has to do with what? Promise. If God doesn't fulfill his promises, which he, never, which he did, and he did in Christ in 2 Corinthians 1.20, if he didn't, would it be good? If God said something and didn't do it, would it be good? No. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man should ever change his mind. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Has he not spoken, and will he not bring it to pass? There's no such thing as a lie in the goodness that God is. None whatsoever, because the Lord is good. And it speaks of, a stronghold speaks of the absolute goodness of God's nature. That's our stronghold. His absolute goodness and his divine nature, where we find all his blessings. The enemy wants to cause trouble. God uses it to make our hearts soft so he, can, so he can enter in with all his goodness and bless us. Thank God we're just passing through. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going to walk through it. I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God's good. He's good. His love is, is perfect and complete. And so if there's any goodness in us, what is it? It has to be a derived goodness, isn't it? Because only good dwells in him. We see that again. It's his nature, as we said in Exodus 34 and verse 6. That's why Jesus said in, in Matthew 19, verses 17 and 18, and Luke, uh, uh, Luke 19, 17, 18, and 19, in response to, to the uh, ruler, there's only one that's good. Good only belongs in God. That's why grace is only in him. That's why. And that's why God is love. And that's why his love flows through grace. And when we receive it through, us, through him humbling us, then what do we have? We, we function in his goodness and the fact that he is very, very faithful.
So that's what we see. It's a derived good. If there's any goodness, it's derived. Why? Because in God, it is essential. It's, meaning it's of his essence. It's literally of his essence. And his goodness that he is towards us is independent of everything. He doesn't give us good based upon ourselves. But that's what ha- makes it necessary for us in the midst of darkness, in the midst of trouble, to absolutely depend upon him. Because when I do, his goodness will reveal how independent it is above everything. <laughs> it's not constrained by anything. It just doesn't. It's unbounded. It's limitless. It's limitless. And in God, in his presence, where his goodness is, is what? It's changeless. God can never be anything other than who he is. That's why we could never attribute evil to God in any sense. Because there's nothing but goodness in him. Nothing. And, and the very active character is his divine goodness. Is God's love good? That's why, that's why love is God. No. God is love. God is love. And in that, there's what? Nothing but good. Nothing but good for you and I. And he does care for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 brings it out. He does care for us. There's no question about it. He cares for us. And his goodness is in its suitableness right in our present condition. His goodness meaning that his goodness means that whatever circumstance and situation we're in, that goodness suits itself to the place where we are. That means God's very intimate. He's very, very intimate with us. And so when we get in his presence in Psalm 1611, when we set him before our face in Psalm 16, verse 8. Okay, what do we see? We see all his attributes, not only his nature, but all his attributes that flow out of his nature, all of those begin to be employed for our benefit. (laughs) That's right. God for us in Romans 8.31, who against us? He spared not his own son. Now that he hasn't, and he's given him to us, will he not with him freely give us what? All things. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. It is. And nothing can separate us. In 835 to 39, from our precious Savior and the goodness that is in him, our goodness is not in ourselves, but it's in him. Thank God he's in us. And thank God that we're in him. And so all those attributes shut us up for his glory and our blessing and benefit. And what does that do? In, in the day of trouble, that can be the day that we can be shut up in him. The day of trouble is the day that we can be shut up with him. Why? Because you know what it says? He knows them that trust them. That means he knows us intimately. The sheep, he, he knows his sheep in John 10, verses 3, all the way to, to 27. He knows his sheep. Meaning, he knows those that in the day of adversity, in the day that it's darkest, in the day of trouble, those that flee to him and run to him, like the little kids who are playing outside, when the storm comes, they run home to a place of safety and security. He knows intimately and is intimately acquainted with those that will trust 
in the goodness that's only in him, the goodness of his love. And so we see, is it good to seek him at all time? Then when should we not seek goodness from him? Will we want to seek him when we're far away from him? And of course we won't, but we can trust in God because trusting in God and doing good, meaning receiving God's good, go together. They go right together. Okay, You cannot trust God and not experience goodness. They go together. That's why he wants us to trust him in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind. Trust in his goodness, his love, his mercy. And, and it's good. It's good to wait for him in Psalm 37, uh, verse 7. It's good to wait for him. And for, we're not to fret ourselves for, for any evil. It's good for us to hope and wait patiently for the Lord. Because as dark as it might seem by sight, the light's about to dawn. And usually it's darkest before it does. It's reached the peak of its darkness. You know, the peak, the peak of the darkness, I think it's Luke 22, 58. It was the, it was the hour of, of the power of darkness against Christ on, on Calvary. But what light came out of that? That was dark, but what light came out of it? And what can God bring out of our trouble, our circumstances, our situations? And uh, so to trust in God implies what? A satisfied persuasion. That's right. He's persuading us constantly. Trust me. Trust me. Not by what you feel. Not by the, even the appearance of what things look like. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight or sense. And he's dependable. He doesn't lie. And so we see then that God comes to minister to the afflicted and those that are alarmed with fear. 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power power, strength, dunamis, the goodness of his power and love and a very well-disciplined mind. Thinking just like him. Thinking not ever about ourselves or about anyone else outside of his goodness. Outside of the goodness that he is. And so he ministers. The enemy comes in. And even in Psalm 119, verse 67, it says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But boy, once we get back, huh? we experience this love. And the enemy means it for evil. But God, separated from all of that, means it for good. And so we see here that the defeat of all, all our enemies, and who are our enemies? All the enemies of Christ that he dealt with. All your enemies in mind, fear, doubt, worry, insecurity, Sins. It doesn't matter what it is. They were all his enemies that he dealt with on Calvary. And so we see here then that the lesson is that God is always good, especially in seasons of calamity, especially in seasons of deep trouble. By appearance, things look like it could be over. But all they are is they become the, a beautiful revelation of the comfort or his comforter. Remember what Jesus said? He was a comforter the whole time he walked the face of the earth. But then he was going to go up, and then he was going to, what? Intercede as our comforter in heaven, because we need one there. 
But then he said, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, who will come right alongside you in the midst of your trouble, and he will comfort you. He was with them in Christ in John 14, verse 17, but he said he will be in you. And we have two comforters, one in heaven and one on earth, and comforting us in the midst of all our affliction. And so, but what happens and what can happen to us is when that affliction comes or when the trouble comes, the enemy can project unworthy thoughts of God. Fear, worry, doubt. We've all experienced that. We all have. But they're unworthy thoughts of God and they're apt to rise within us and especially make us suspicious of his goodness, which flows from his unconditional love. (laughs) See, it's all in himself. He's not limited to us because there's no limit to who he is in himself. (laughs) And even trouble doesn't limit that. As a matter of fact, it becomes a great source of the manifestation of his, his faithfulness and his love and his comfort. But even the days of judgment, and it's coming, it's coming. I mean, if it came, if it came to, to Israel, and it did, it definitely came in Jeremiah 10, verse 25. Judgment will begin in the house of God in 1 Peter 4, 17, but what will it be? Judgment in the sense that he's chastising us, and that chastisement is even the comfort of his love to bring us back to his presence into his presence, where there's the fullness of joy. And then we begin to see things at his right hand, Christ. There's pleasures. The only things that please us is in our Savior Christ, which is brought out again in Psalm 16, uh, verses 8 and 11. But we can, and the enemy wants to make us suspicious when trouble comes and things come against us. And he, he tries to make us suspicious of God's goodness. You know, there's no suspicion in love. And there's no suspicion in God's goodness because that goodness flows from his love. But what happens, though, is if we continue to indulge and be overwhelmed with these suspicious thoughts, they will alienate our minds from God, his service, and what? Prompt us to be impatient. Prompt us to want to quit. To make us murmur. To live not in the character that we are in Christ, not in the character that we are. But these days of judgment that are coming to our country, as we're reading it here, right here in, in, in uh, Nahum, in this Nahum 1 verse 7, what we see here, even the days of judgment are just God's merciful warnings to us. Not only us, but to all others. This becomes our opportunity to tell people about Christ becomes our opportunity. There's never been a greater opportunity than there is right now in our country. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he said, a great and effectual door is open unto me. And there are many adversaries. The many adversaries, the more adversaries there are, it becomes the opportunity for the door of God's word to flow right into us in our experience, and then let it to flow to others. And, and so they can be these instructors, and in this sense, like monitors for even our future. We know two things. Judgment is coming. As a matter of fact, the resurrection proves that. The resurrection proves two things. 
in Acts 17, verse 31. It proves this. What does it prove? That there's no judgment for us, but that judgment is coming here. And boy, is it coming here in our country today. But thank God for these warnings. And thank God also for the deliverance and purifying of his word for us as individuals that make up the church. And uh, what is it always? His word always is. Listen, the Lord is always good. He's goodness himself. He reveals himself to us as a stronghold. And he invites us to flee to him for safety and comfort. Because in the days of trouble, in the days of trouble, the Lord is good. He's good. He's goodness itself. And he affectionately watches over all who honor him with their trust. You know what trust does? Not walking by sight, by absolute dependence on his word, his very presence. You know what that? It honors him. In our weakest moments, Luke 18, 1, men should always pray and not faint. Men should always pray and not faint. Prayer doesn't have to do with our feelings. Matter of fact, it just has absolute dependence upon God himself, his word. That's what it has to do with. But his word in the midst of trouble, again, will be like a burst of sunshine in the midst of a storm. You remember what Jesus said. Remember in Luke the 8th chapter, in Matthew the 14th chapter, they went in the little... They went in the little boat with Jesus and he told them, I'm going to, you, you, I, let's get in here because we're going to go to the other side. That's what he told them before they left. He said, get in here. He's with us. You're going to, and we need to get here. We need to be here together. And I'm going to take you to the other side. And in the midst of it, a storm came up, a violent storm so that Instead of operating in dependence like we all can do and, and feelings and by sight, they woke him up out of a sleep. And he said, oh, you of little faith. He just, got, he just stood right up and, he, and the, the Greek brings it up. Two, two words. He said to the raging storm, be muzzled. And there was a perfect calm. Perfect calm. You know, and again, some of us and some Christians any of us and Christians and precious Christians that I know, they get caught up in the whole political scene here in this country. And it overwhelms them. They lose their peace. They become so occupied with the political thing. That's why it says in Romans 12, verse 21, be not overcome of evil. You're aware of it. You understand it. But our life is Christ. It's not, not occupation with that. Our occupation in Luke 19, 30, 13 is with Christ. Be not overcome with evil. And if we understand prophecy, if we understand it, that it's coming, but at that it's already judged and it's working itself out. Well, we're on our way to a face-to-face -face meeting uh, with our precious Savior. And so, to be occupied with him, men should always pray and not faint. To faint means in my weakest moments, I fall on him. Fall on his goodness. Fall on his mercy, his grace. And this goodness... That, we, uh, that God always has available to us. The goodness of God is what? What is it like? It's like every other perfection of his nature. And what is his goodness? Is God infinite? Is his goodness then infinite, which is his very nature? 
His essence, his very character. It's infinite. And it can't, what's that mean? It can't be added to it. And his goodness that doesn't change and is infinite can what? It can't be any greater than it is. <laughs> his love for us, throwing, flowing through grace and manifesting his goodness, his faithfulness, his grace, his, his mercy, it just is what? Is infinite. In other words, we have an infinite supply. An infinite supply. And you can't add anything to it. It's nothing that we do to deserve it. It's just his nature flowing out to us. Even in our salvation, wasn't that what it was? Who did he save? And we see it in Romans 5, 6 to 10. When we were yet without strength, 5, 6 of Romans. When we were actively sinning in 5.8. When we were hostile enemies in 5.10. He, he what? His love was being manifested towards us. Now that we're in Christ, what will limit his goodness? The goodness of God through Christ in us and us in him is limitless. And this goodness is also self-moved. It's not what we do. It's his goodness literally is self-moved. It's spontaneous and free. Do you ever go through a tough time and it was intense? And then all of a sudden you became shocked at his goodness that came in and was like a burst of sunshine and then it was all gone. What a shocker, huh? That's because you know why? His love, his goodness, his grace, his mercy is what? It's infinite. It's of no end. It never had a beginning. Think about that. It never had. In other words, it, it never had a beginning in himself. And it will never have an end in himself. And we are in the son of his love in Colossians 1 and verse 13. It's very, very beautiful the way it brings it out. But, but that goodness always moves and acts in conformity with his just and holy nature. So can God at the same time be loving, compassionate, tender, and gentle and still experience the wrath of his judgment, his justice, without being inconsistent? These are all this phoniness of universalism and annihilation because they want to they take one part of his character, his nature and essence, and make it an issue and separate it from all the others. And there's where all thoughts, our thoughts that aren't from him, fears, doubts, or that's where they come because we separate parts of his nature and in himself is God inseparable. <laughs> that's so amazing when I think about it. It's self-moved, this goodness. It's spontaneous. It's free. It requires nothing in us to call it into operation. Did you know that? <laughs> so why not trust him? <laughs> Why not trust his goodness? Because it's nothing in us that brings it out. It's just his goodness in himself that comes out. What does that mean? Well, God loves to see his love towards us and in us. <laughs> That's what Psalm 11 verse 7 says. The righteous Lord loves righteousness. You know what that means? He loves who his son is in us. And he loves who we are in him. And nothing on this earth and time can ever stop his goodness. It's at times experientially, but it still doesn't stop 
that goodness that's in himself towards us, ever. He doesn't change his mind. Malachi 3.6, I'm the Lord your God, I change not. James 1.17, every good gift and every gift that's perfected and completed in itself comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness. He never changes. Neither shadow of turning in anything, in anything at all. And so, has God been good and gracious to us before? Has he not taken us through innumerable troubles and afflictions? Will he ever be anything less than who he already has been and who he is? He won't be anything less. And so he's good and gracious to us because you know what? It was God's love that found for you and I a savior. And in him we have everything, everything. Every single thing that, that uh, God has for us, he has for us in his son. And that's why the cross, for, the, for us as believers, the cross and the meditation of Christ is the way the divine goodness has opened itself for us, even right now in our present condition. When I think of the cross and what's done, all judgment is gone, all of it. I'm not held accountable. I may be lovingly chastised, but I'm not held accountable for my failure. I'm not held accountable for it. I, my, I may be lovingly disciplined, but I will, not be, I will not be held accountable for it because there is only one judge. Boy, I wish Christians could hear this. There's only one judge. And for Christians that are in Christ, there is no judge, just the loving Father. And we don't know one another in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, after the flesh. Because in whatever stage of growth that we're in, we're growing. And there's going to be failure. We've said this before. Wouldn't you love to have David as your king? Was there a greater king? Was there a greater king in all of Israel? Did he fail? Let me ask you, did he fail? Do any of us think that before God called him to be king that he knew all his failures and still chose him to be king? Do you think that about Moses? How many would love to be led by Moses? And listen, how many would love to have pastor as their pastor the Apostle Paul? He failed. He failed. How should we know him? Every man of God that God used being born again in Christ, every man, did they fail. They didn't make an excuse for it now. There is no excuse in John 15, verse 22. There's no cloak for anything. But did he use them? When they failed, did he stop using them? I don't know, when you fail, does he stop blessing you? Or does he know you after your failure? Does he know you after your flesh? Does it become a topic of conversation? Does it? That's your conversation? That's my conversation? Paul. Do you think the, uh, the Corinthians felt that way about Paul? They did. They did. Look at this guy. Well, he taught all that. Now look at him. <laughs> you know, who didn't fail? Who didn't fail in this Bible? You tell me. And, my, and another believer's failure or their conduct that is not equal to their character, that should be the means of my judgment. Do you know what? It's very intense because to act like judge, you actually put yourself above Christ, above God, in each other. We would do that. 
We would do it. But thank God that when we are judged and falsely accused, when people make our failures and our flesh to be who we are and how they see us, we can always do this. We can flee to his goodness. We can flee. And by the way, maybe the one that you see failing and not acting up to their character, that God would convict them and they would hate it far worse than you ever would. Because you cannot have the word in, in, in certain measure and then, and then not hate the flesh that you're not. <laughs> you imagine if God treated us after our failures do you ever hear that thing when you're pointing your finger at someone and making them an issue? You know you got at least three pointing back at you. Read Romans the second chapter about judgment. Read Romans and read uh, James the fifth chapter about judgment. And yet God would send Nahum to Nineveh so that those wicked, most evil people could receive Christ. The most vilest, evil person who receives Christ. Are they, as far as when they receive Christ, are they that vile and evil pe person ever again? No. Never again. So, I mean, how many love David's Psalms? You like his Psalms? No. He was an adulterer. No excuses. He was a murderer. You like his psalms? You read him? Hmm? You love the Apostle Paul, church's worst enemy? Unbelievable. I don't know. What makes us think that we should be a judge of anybody? Moses failed. He shouldn't preach anymore, right? He shouldn't lead anymore. Shouldn't do that. Paul, did you know that every single one of his disciples in Matthew 26, 56, they all forsook him? Did you know that? They all forsook him. Name me one Christian that ever hasn't. Just name me one who's never forsaken him, who's never functioned in flesh, who's never thought an evil thought. Oh my God. And should we know each other after it? Well, we can flee to him. We can flee to him and get to him. And when we get to him, he wants to remove us from trouble into himself. That's what he does. Because then trouble doesn't reach us. It's the great exchange. I put all my troubles into his heart. Yes, Lord, I failed. And maybe I did it in front of others. But you convicted me. You dealt with me. And the whole time that God is convicting and dealing with those that he's loved, there could be some on the sidelines judging because they think they have enough in their own walk to be able to do that. It's so, is sin, is that evil? To act as a judge, is it evil? Yeah, because sin, what's sin? My will, not yours, God. It's not a light thing, folks. It's not a light thing. And did you see, did you see how Peter failed? He denied his own Savior and swore in anger. He never knew him. Yet who was waiting on the shore for him to recommission him? And not a word of repentance on his part, by the way. There was not a word of repentance when Jesus met him on the shore. 
Did you know that? You know what he did? He recommissioned the apostle who thought it was over. That's why it says in John 21, verse 3, he said, I'm going fishing. You know what he was saying? It's over for me. Might as well just go back to a regular occupation. I betrayed him. I swore I didn't know him. That's what a judge does. They swear in that area that they judge. They don't know Christ. They, don't, they no longer function, even if it's ignorance or pride, in, in their own forgiveness. But he said, I go back. And the whole time they're out there, Jesus is on the shore preparing a meal. And this backslidden apostle, with all the others too, by the way, even the one that laid his head on Jesus' breast in John 13, 23, he was out there too. They all forsook him. They all thought it was over. They all thought that was the last failure. You, you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was it. It's over. Jesus is on the shore and he recommissions Peter in John 21, 15 to 17. And that backslidden preacher, apostle, who was out fishing all night striving with guilt and condemnation experientially, and there's a, there's a meal that Christ is preparing and wants to share with him, and that's fellowship, intimate fellowship. Backslidden guy. Do you know the first time he preached? We see the first time he preached in Acts 2.41, 3,000 men, 3,000 people received Christ. That's called power. Power coming in in the midst of failure and doing away with it. Not making an excuse for it, but doing away with it. Then he preached a second message in Acts 4.4, his second very message. Just previously backslidden. Now he's preaching. And 5,000 received Jesus Christ. Those numbers are very significant. 3,000. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three. Grace, five. Not able to mix anything with it. When? When I make a living being my refuge. When I'm being judged. And I can discern it. When I'm not being loved. And I'm thankful for those that love me, even when I fail. But when I make a living being my Savior, my refuge, when I fly to him to protect me, it is clear that he must know I am come to him for protection. And he wouldn't protect us if we ran to him. If your child was in disobedience and then they ran home, why would they run home? Because of your love that would protect them. Boy, we need to protect each other. Love covers a multitude of sins in Proverbs 10, verse 12. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing in, in Proverbs 25 and verse 2. Read, read Proverbs 17 and verse 9 in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. And when we fail, and by the way, when we do fail with each other, if I see you fail or another fail, who should I go to first? You tell me. God. And then to who? the individual, it doesn't become a topic of conversation with another believer, unless that other believer is that one you go to alone. I'm going to make that, and God wants to make that abundantly clear to us. My God, who do we think we are? God Almighty. Oh, Lord, who keep us, keep me, keep us from that. But I can flee to him. He's my refuge. And I fly to him in his protection so that those dangers don't even touch me. And he even becomes the shield that protects me against my own failures, against judgment, judging. 
wicked people that judge and not make God's love a topic of conversation, but judgment. You know what a judge does when we don't function in Christ? We compare ourselves and we find ourselves to be better. Read Romans, the second chapter. You read it. Because isn't it the goodness of God that would lead us to constantly change our mind? And if I judge someone, has he led me to a place of love yet? No. No, because in, in his love for us, there isn't any judgment. That brings in the beautiful knowledge and protection of God. You know what? His goodness, that word is goodness, his unconditional love, his grace, his mercy, it is what? It becomes impossible for words to exaggerate the attention God pays to his suffering people. You love being rejected, don't you? You love being hurt, don't you? Don't you love it when people talk about you? You love it? Feels good? Hmm? No, doesn't feel too good. But you know what? You know what it's like? It's like the, what in, as we close, in these olden days where the seas would be whipped up in a hurricane force winds, they would come in like what they would call a breakwater would come rushing into the harbor where the ships were. They would build a huge, huge wall. It was so strong that the force of hurricane winds and some of them would slam against those walls 3,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. Think of that. But it wouldn't touch that defensive wall, that break, that breakwater wall. And the ships would be there in a beautiful calm, resting right in the harbor. Why? Because they're sheltered. Those ships would be sheltered in perfect safety. And this is the type of the security that God gives to those that trust him. They make his name, his very nature, their sanctuary. They're secure in God. And it reaches down into the depths. The storm is raging. You know what makes an oak tree so strong? What makes it so strong? Because those winds and those storms batter it. And it makes its roots go way down deep. The psalmist said, and that was what Jesus was speaking about in Psalm 42, verse 7. He said, the deep calls unto the deep. At the noise of your water spouts, all those waves and billows are gone over me, but yet they don't move me. Because of the roots of faith, the roots in who our character is in Christ, goes way down deep. And they become a source. Those roots become a source, a water source, to make that plant grow. And it's green. And when people look at it, they, they see his mercy and his grace. What does a person need who fails? I mean, when you fail, and when I fail, when we fail, what do we need? What do we need? Don't we need God's grace? Don't we need his forgiveness? Don't we need it in each other? The treasure, we have that treasure in these fragile clay jars. Did you know that? We have that treasure in these fragile clay jars that the excellency, the power that excels is above everything. We're just scratching this this morning. We're scratching it. But thank God that there's no trouble, there's no waves, there's no storms, there's no 
commotion of any water that can shake us from our foundation. And when a man or a woman has deep or inner clingings to God, when the roots of his life go down and take hold on God, mere surface agitation and pressures won't overcome it. A look, bad look. The sideliners, those on the sideline. Others may be in, in the game, God dealing with them. God dealing with them. And, and, uh, but then there's going to be the sideline crew. The judges, the referees of another's life on the side. <laughs> Calling the shots the way they see them. <laughs> oh, God, keep us from that. Because we're going to go through things ourselves. We're going to go through them. And in this world, there's enough to crush and kill each other, each of us personally, much less us doing it to each other. Instead of biting and devouring in Galatians 5 and verse 15, be careful that you don't bite and devour one another. That's judgment. But if you walk in the spirit in Galatians 5, 16, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so the Christian has enough to go through in this world to crush and kill in him all spiritual life all joy and all beauty, but all around us is this divine atmosphere of a love and goodness. And his mercy comes in and he loves us. And that love in us resists all evil. It's like a fire. His love is like a fire. It consumes everything and keeps back that contact, that contact when, we, when evil would try to contact us, it keeps us back and it protects us. And in, in Isaiah 54 and verse 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And listen, and every tongue that rises against you, against you, he will condemn. Did you notice that? Isn't that awesome? And when the enemy, not if, but when the enemy comes in like a flood, what will God do? He'll lift up a standard against them. He'll cause the enemy to flee, to flee. And thank God for that. Thank God. Just, Lord, we thank you as we close this this morning. Thank you for the character, the character that we have in you that allows us to calmly wait before you. Not venturing to judge according to a present appearance. Never judging by present appearance, ever. But trusting in God, trusting in him. Trusting in God supposes there is no, there is some occasion that I have to trust him. And the work of faith, Father, thank you for the work of faith, is to trust God when all outward things go wrong and there is nothing but the word of God to rely on. Trusting in God is the highest manifestation of that that is real, godly principle. Thank you, Father, for your precious love. Thank you that in the midst of the most wickedness, thank you, Father, for what you have in us, for what you have for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.